This will be sort of the official, it's not the end of the emphasis by any means of biblical revival at all, but as far as the series of messages go that has developed out of the 21 days of prayer and fasting and the listening guide and the series of sermons we did with Richard Owen Roberts, this, this really is the end of that particularly um, if you all remember, I said that there would be a sixth sermon added to the, to the list. Show of hands for the sixth who listened to the sixth. Could be better. <laughs> okay. So if you haven't heard the sixth sermon, um, this will give you a little insight to it. I'd, I'd still challenge you to go and listen. Uh, but in fact, uh, I want to talk today about enlarging the conversation calling a solemn assembly. We have been talking about biblical revival now for, for uh, well, technically for probably nine years, but I would say more accurately talking about it for six. Um, is that right? Six and, yeah, something like that. So um, I want to just say to you that there is no way that we as a church can pursue a holy walk with God without rediscovering the Word of God. And I don't mean as if we don't have it. That's not my intention to say that. But the closer you get to God, the brighter the Scripture comes. And the brighter the Scripture comes, so does the church show forth. The church is the bride of Christ. We all know that. But what are the implications of that? What does it mean? It means that we cannot forget that we are part of a much larger body that couldn't all be assembled here this morning because it would be practically impossible. But all across this nation, in the varying time zones, the body of Christ has met, are meeting, or are about to meet. To pray, to preach, and to proclaim the gospel all across this nation. We don't know them all. There's no way we can. But we can't forget them. And so then the call to biblical revival is to remember that we have to enlarge the conversation with our brethren. Whatever your friends are that attend other churches, have the conversation. Hey, have you ever heard of revival? Be prepared to hear all kinds of things in response that aren't true or maybe misinformed. Not because of any malice, just because. And then say, but can I tell you what we've been studying about? And show them what God has done. And begin to inform and influence your Christian brethren to join as we try to gather the body of Christ together in seeking His face as one body. That's what's going to have to happen. That that time of seeking God together as one body culminates in what is known as a solemn assembly. And and the word solemn is the operative word. It's, It's the word that means this is the main thing of why we're going to be doing it. This is where it... This is where the apex happens, the solemn assembly. You might be thinking, man, you've got high ideas. It's a miracle 
for it to happen. In fact, I can't even tell you the last time there has been a solemn assembly in America of such magnitude. But if it can be explained, then it's not of God. So, in honor of God and his word, let's stand and turn to Ezra, chapter 10. We're, we're going to read down through. I'm echoing a bit, Cody. It's weird. <clears throat> Ezra, chapter 10, verse 1. Now, some background here before we start. The uh, Babylonian exiles have been returned and deposited back in the land, according to God's promise, after 70 years of captivity, for disobeying the word of God, the revealed will of God, the law of God. They immediately went back into doing dumb things, and so they intermarried with pagans, which was expressly forbidden in the law of God with their covenant with them. Now Ezra is a priest and a scribe. Under Nehemiah's direction as the governor. That's why you see Nehemiah and Ezra are really one book in, in the uh, Jewish uh, canon. So in response to this news that the people have started intermarrying with unbelieving pagans in the land. The very thing that got them in trouble in the first place. This is where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 10 with Ezra. It says, now while Ezra was praying... And while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. There was a great brokenness. And even more to the point, the priest of God was broken in humiliation and despair because of the seriousness of the offense considering that this was the very reason they got carted off to Babylon in the first place. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, and we have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. So he clearly knew that God was a God of loving kindness and mercy. He knew that. And now he's telling Ezra the priest, here we are. We see it. Yes, this is our sin. Now, therefore, in verse 3, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise for this matter is your responsibility, Ezra. We also are with you. Be of courage, good courage, and do it. You've got a hard job in front of you, Ezra. But here we are. We're a mess, and we're a train wreck. And it's a bowl of spaghetti. But Ezra, be of good courage. Do your job. Do it. Lead, Ezra. Play the man. Be who God called you to be. Then Ezra arose. And made the leaders of the priests and the Levites and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they, were, they swore an oath. And Ezra calls the leaders to accountability first. If the Ezra's aren't lead, if the Ezra's, that works. If the Ezra's slash leaders 
aren't leading spiritually, the people cannot follow. Okay. Then Ezra rose up before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoahan, the son of Elisha. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those of the captivity. So he went into a fasting time. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem. Notice verse 7. In response to this brokenness, in response to this great offense, they, they called a solemn assembly that everybody is supposed to gather at Jerusalem. And that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling, now notice this part, because of this matter, and because of heavy rain. Spiritually, it was a downpour of condemnation and guilt. They were guilty. Physically, there was a downpour of cold rain. But their hearts wanted to be reconciled to God to the pat, to the point that they didn't recognize this. They stood there in that position. It was a solemn assembly. Things had gotten to the point, it was bad enough, that extreme times call for extreme measures. Okay? Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed. And have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore, notice verse 11. Make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice. Now notice this. Yes, as you have said, so we must do. That's the resolve of those gathered at the solemn assembly. What God has said So we must do. We'll stop it right there. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot here under the old covenant that we need to bring underneath the new. But Father, the principle is the same. Sometimes, extreme times call for for extreme measures. You have taken your law and written it on our heart. And I wonder when the last time we were broken desperately enough to stand out in the pouring rain because of the sin around us and because of the sin even we've committed. When we say enough's enough, God, whatever you say, we must do. God, please, it's for such a time as this. Teach us the value and necessity of what's known as the solemn assembly. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Show of hands, how many of you have heard of a solemn assembly? Yeah, some, not, not a lot, about as many as listen to the sixth sermon, <laughs> okay? So, I have to admit, I've never heard of it before until I began to study biblical revival and then finally stumbled onto it one day and thought, what in the world is that? Now, I want to tell you in advance, I have developed, I have, I have, I have discovered that there is a theme with the enemy that those valuable things that God has given us, He has polluted the most in the church. You can just count on it. For example, how important is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God? 
Our whole hope is based on it and what has been so butchered and tried. It was the very first thing out of the gate that became the controversy. How important is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the daily Christian life? And yet, look at the abuses that surround that. How important is the inerrancy of Scripture? And yet, look at the first of the attacks upon the Word of God that have happened in our time even. Prayer. The devil says, give up. It doesn't work. Why you bother? Fasting? Oh, that's only for the, that's only for the fringe people. You know, the ones out there. No, you don't need those disciplines. And solemn assembly, well, now you've just kind of went out there into the upper atmospheres. You're out there far. And if you go on YouTube, and I would suggest you don't do it, if you type in solemn assembly, you would be amazed at the kind of ridiculous, counter-anti-biblical notions that you will find. You could go five pages deep and probably still not stumble onto one that deals with it justly. It's a show, a fiasco. But, so does that mean that we're supposed to overlook it? What does the Bible say? Well, I've adapted some of this from Richard Owen Roberts, and, 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 and I would ask to, today that you'd be patient with me as I make my notes here on the screen. I put them up there if they help you, but really they're for me reading, okay? So... What is a solemn assembly by definition? In the Bible, a solemn assembly is a gathering of the people of Israel for a sacred feast, festival, or a holy occasion. A solemn assembly is included, or a solemn assembly included a ritual of purification or observing a state of holiness in which all the people of the community were commanded to do no work. The solemn assembly is called a sacred assembly or a solemn meeting. You read your Old Testament, you'll see that. One Hebrew word translated solemn assembly means a day of restraint, primarily from work. Another Hebrew term rendered solemn assembly denotes a unique appointed time set apart for the keeping of festivals. On this special worship occasions, the whole community gathered together for either a feast or a fast day. And then lastly, today, some Protestant churches periodically hold meetings they call solemn assemblies and their purpose is usually to pray and hear the word during a time of corporate soul-searching, notice that part, and self-examination. Soul-searching and self-examination. Typically, the congregation comes together during a solemn assembly for repentance, confession of sin, and fasting. A solemn assembly, in other words, is, is what you do when things have gotten really far gone. Now, we all have agreed that biblical revival is a sovereign work of God. But we also have learned in the past years that cultivate the holiness and presence of God in our lives is going to cause us to look at the sin in our lives, right? So for those of you who garden, you have garden boxes or you just have a flat space out on the ground, at some point soon you're going to begin to think what needs to go, what needs cleaned out, what needs amended. You're going to have to start thinking that way if you want to grow a healthy plant. That's what happens at a solemn assembly. It's, Lord, we've, we've reached a critical point. This is the nuclear option. But God 
It's just us, it seems. But that's not true. Every time we see in Scripture where one of the men of God or prophets of God thought, I'm just, just, just us and me alone, God will remind him, no, I've got others. So we begin to connect the dots and we begin to challenge our brethren for the purpose of an eventual solemn assembly. Here, here is my heart. I want to see a solemn assembly called in the Magic Valley sometime in the next two years. A prepared solemn assembly led by the pastors who have convened for a certain period of time monthly to pray together, to get on the same page together for the church's need for a reawakening or a refreshing of God's Spirit over us as we deal with our sins individually as churches and as individuals in those churches. And then as a collective group of pastors, we begin to move the churches to that point of understanding the solemn assembly to hold a solemn assembly in a venue big enough to hold everybody and be determined to stay there until God moves. Because it's that bad. Now, you realize there's a lot going to go on during that time. A lot of preaching, a lot of teaching, a lot of preparation. But it begins with things like this. An awareness of the need. Exodus chapter 33, verse 7 through 11. We have our very first verse to substantiate this idea of a solemn assembly. Moses took the tent and pitched it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. He called it the place of meeting and required everyone who sought the Lord to go outside the camp, away from the place of sin, to the tabernacle to meet the Lord. So in other words, a solemn assembly is a time of separation from everything else. Remember we read that one of the Hebrew words is the word for restraint. You stop what you're doing. It's time to stop. Sometimes when I got out of hand and my dad would say, I want your complete undivided attention and the way he said it even the animals gave it okay because it had gotten to such a point where it was done you either gave your attention or you would lose consciousness okay so I was all ears okay and I think I believe that God is calling his people to such a time I hear it from other believers in other states. I hear it from other pastors in this very valley today, right now. This is happening. I'm astonished and I'm encouraged. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5 and 6. Samuel required all Israel to gather at Mizpah in a solemn assembly where he prayed for them. And they fasted and confessed their sins. We have to get to the point where we no longer see the church as a showboat for the saints but a place of healing and brokenness, a display of forgiveness and redemption and mending, a place to come clean because there's nobody here better than the other. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, 14, and in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 through 18, we read, after a bad start in sinning against the Lord by moving the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember on a new cart that was the Philistine method, David and the people moved it according to the word of the Lord because they went back and said, how should we do this again? And that's what a solemn assembly does. 
It gets us reacquainted with what God said to do in the prescribed fashions. And the word of the Lord and in joyful humiliation, David danced before the Lord with all his might and a lin and a fod. Having laid aside his crown and royal robes, he acted as a common man among men. While no mention is made of a solemn assembly in the Second Samuel account, it is detailed in the parallel passage in First Chronicles. And if you read those two together, this is the same picture. You will see that this indeed was a solemn assembly. Well, I could go on and on with verse after verse. I will end with Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, in which case we understood while ago that Nehemiah and Ezra were together. Nehemiah was the governor, Ezra the priest. A solemn assembly was held in front of the water gate where the book of the law of Moses was read by the hour for a better part of the day. And they stood out there and they listened. How bad does it have to get for God's people to be so desperate for God to move that they're willing to go through discomfort, to willing to, to put aside their, their routines and, 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 and self-interests And come alongside with God's people saying, we're done. You're saying you want our complete undivided attention, Lord. Here it is. And then, accordingly, the ministers administer the scripture. And there's a time of confession and repentance and brokenness. And it says there in Nehemiah 8, and an agreement was made in writing. Now notice that. They were so committed they put it in writing to put away their sin and it says to seek the lord with all their hearts which really is the root sin is it not when we stop seeking the lord with all our hearts okay in joel chapter 1 verse 13 and 14 joel writes gird yourselves and lament you priests wail you who minister before the altar So we're dealing with the spiritual leadership, right? Come, lie all night in sackcloth. Bring that up to speed. Here's what Joel is asking of the spiritual leadership. Put on a toe sack. Everyone knows what a toe sack is, right? Okay, cotton. You put cotton in toe sacks. Uh, Burlap. Burlap. Sorry. That's an Oklahoma thing. Did you know what a toe sack was, Annie? Of course you did. I know you would. You would. She hails from Arkansas, of course. Well, Tosac is a burlap. So you know how that feels. So, hey, Travis, Rich, Brian, all the deacons, strip down, put on burlap, cut you a, head, a hole for your head. You got two arms, put your belt on it so, you know, you're together. And we're going to lay all night praying to seek God in this place at the altar. And then they would say, we need to have a meeting about Mickey. (laughs) He's getting out there. But essentially, that's spiritually asking that you understand the parallel, right? Okay. Now, that wasn't hard. That, they did this all the time in those days, and they even put ash on their head. But he says, You who minister to my God for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. 
Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God. And then do one thing. Cry out. So I want to ask you a question. Do you think that we're at the point yet where we can actually cry out with the kind of volume that's required? No. But we're going to start getting there. And, and in fact, it's happening. It's serious. When enough's enough, and God says, I want your undivided attention. You've tried politics. You've tried bumper stickers. You've tried commercials and TV ads. You've even tried Bible studies and all kinds of things. You've missed me by about that much. Because your heart, something's wrong there. There's a bit of a disconnect. Did you know that it's possible to read this and really never gain anything? Oh, definitely so. I had a professor in college that was like that. He knew it very well. He just didn't know the God of the Bible. Well, sometimes in the Christian life, we can get a little comfy in our complacency, can't we? We can, and we are all like that. The solemn assembly is when you face your flesh and you say, you're going down. And you take yourself by your collar and you throw yourself down. And you say to God, help me up and out. We need you. We're broken. And our children are paying the price. I I hesitate to bring this up, but I think it fits for what I just have been describing. How broken are we? Whether you know it or not, in New Mexico, recently, in the past week or two, the Church of Satan has decided that they are going. That they have come out and announced that, that abortion is their right because it's part of their ritual, much like our baptism is. Abortion. And they're doing all of this free abortion stuff to offer and to worship. Now, we've always known that abortion is satanic. Always. But now the gloves are coming off even more. You see... People always used to say, well, Satan hides in the shadows. Well, it's because used to, he had to. But anymore, no, oh, he's wearing blaze orange. That's how broken. Then, if that's not bad enough, I learned in New York City, in one of the areas there, they've erected an, 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 an image, an idol, an image of a woman well, female figure with these weird, her hair is braided in such a way that it looks like the horns of, of that satanic figure. And it's the idol of abortion. It's the goddess or it's, it's the, uh, the image to the abortion for women thing. So you see, saints, if we're the salt of the earth, if we're the light of the world, if the light of the world dwells within us, the church needs to get right. And when I say the church, I mean all of us. So 
If the Lord were to say literally, if you ministers would get in burlap and sit on the altar for all night and seek me, I'd be right there. Because I want God. In closing here, I'm going to give you a little historical foundation. And some of you may be like, oh, but just listen. This is out of the book by Richard Owen Roberts about the solemn assembly. This is small print. This is for me, obviously. Not only were solemn assemblies a very common aspect in the revivals of the Bible, but they were a very important part of the life of believers in America during its early years. For verification of this, one has only to consult the Sprague collection of early American pamphlets at the Wiedner Library at Harvard University. There will be found a large number of sermons that were preached at the fast days and solemn assemblies which were frequently called and earnestly attended by American believers prior to the general decline of to Christianity, which characterizes 20th century America. An excerpt says, Our fathers believed God was offended by sin. We agree. Is God offended by sin? Well, our, those early Christian leaders thought that too. They themselves were deeply troubled both by the existence of personal sin in their own lives and by the presence of unconfessed corporate sins in the churches and in the nation. They were troubled. They regarded natural calamities as manifestations of the displeasure of God Almighty against sin and allowed such events as earthquakes, fires, volcanoes, epidemics, floods, and droughts to prompt them to special seeking of God's face in fasting, prayer, and and corporate repentance. So they were so concerned about the heart of God and unconfessed sin on behalf of the people that even if a fire happened, they wanted to get together to make sure there wasn't sin in the camp. That's how, that's how concerned they were. It says, They also sought the Lord in solemn assemblies in connection with wars, murders, rapes, and etc., believing such outburst of wickedness to be directly related to the general decline of moral and spiritual life in the churches. Well, if they thought that then, what is being thought about now? I don't think there's any thinking much. So, here's the, here's the challenge today as we're going into corporate prayer. Number one, it's time that we pray together that God would bring national repentance. That he would begin that in his church, which where the Bible says judgment begins. Right? We are the ones who have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are the ones to influence. Okay? Number two, that God would give us a refreshing of his spirit as we seek him to be faithful in our area of influence so that we may preach the gospel boldly and, and, this is a big one, that God's fear would once again accompany that proclamation. Because it's, it's not so much right now. And that we as a church and churches would prepare ourselves for a coming solemn assembly for biblical revival and awakening in the midst of the judgment that we already deserve. That's 
what we're called to. You say, man, Nikki, that seems like really out there and up there. It is. But this is such a time. For such a time. We're going to go into corporate prayer now. And as I have said before, corporate prayer is not a place for long personal prayers. You might discourage someone who's wanting to pray by going too long. It's about getting to the point. Remember Jesus' example in Matthew 6. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's just really succinct. And let us pray together, one after the other. And let us cry out to God for such things that God would move in our churches, in his church once again, in our churches individually, and across the land, that his fear would fall once again. That there would be a God consciousness in the nation once again. Again, let us pray.